From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. March 28th is Diabetes Alert Day, aimed at raising awareness about the seriousness of diabetes, especially when it's left undiagnosed or untreated. On today's program, we'll discuss managing and preventing diabetes with a Mayo Clinic expert. The key is you keep your blood sugar normal, your blood pressure, remember I said this all works together, and your blood lipids normal, you know, your chances of getting these things are very low. Classic disease, you take care of it, you're fine. You don't care of it, big problems. Also on the program, we'll learn what we can do to keep our brains healthy as we age. And how hypnosis can be used in the clinical setting. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. 29 million, almost 30 million people in this country have diabetes. And that is about one out of every 11 individuals. So you see 11 people in the room, one of them for sure has diabetes. But just as startling is the fact that somebody else in that room probably also has diabetes and doesn't know it. Diabetes means that there's too much glucose or sugar in the blood, which can lead to serious health problems such as increased risk of cardiovascular disease, nerve and kidney damage, and problems with the eyes and feet. Here to discuss diabetes is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist and diabetes expert extraordinaire, Dr. (laughs) Robert Rizza. Welcome back to the program, (laughs) Dr. Rizza. Thank you very much. It's always a delight. You know, it is always so good to have you on the program because I don't know of anybody who can... uh, talk about diabetes as well as you can. Former president of the American Diabetes Association, you've been on the staff almost as long as I have, maybe even longer. No, no, we've you, been you here be, a long you, time. You beat me, Tom. Yeah, you beat me. Not by much. So, okay, we got 29 million people with diabetes in this country. We've got millions of people who have diabetes and don't even know it. It is truly fair to say this is an epidemic, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is, Tom. And, and in the, in the number, because you're, you're really familiar with these numbers, the other number is that people with prediabetes. In other words, diabetes is defined as a blood sugar over 126, not that that matters. And normal is less than 100. And there are a lot of folks who have blood sugars between 100 and 125 that they have about a 40 to 50% chance of going on to get to diabetes they don't know it. So not only do you have this epidemic of people actually have it, you've got this whole tidal wave moving through, you know, where those numbers could double or triple in the next 10 to 15 years, if not something's not done properly. So what, what, what's going on? What's the, what's the problem? Well, I mean, the problem is very clear cut. How do you solve the problem is so much more difficult. All of us, of course, inherit our genes from our parents. And we, and we have genes that, you know, been going down through generations after generations, and it's not one gene for diabetes. There are some rare ones, but that's not what's happening. We all have this predisposition. But then if you, if, if you add to this the way we change our lifestyle, if we're sitting around, we're eating, we're becoming heavy, that overwhelms our ability to cope. Our pancreas simply can't keep up because the pancreas is the organ that screens insulin. So what happens is it just runs out of insulin and our blood sugars are high. You know, 100 years ago, the instance of prevalence of diabetes was 2 or 3%. Now, you just said this, but actually one in three people born in the year 2000, not, not 10, 15%, one in three people in 2000 will get diabetes. So the world has changed around us during this time. Is it because our diets have changed or because we're not moving as much as we used to, or is it both? Yeah, and the answer is, of course, yes. Now, remember, we're talking about type 2 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is this disease in which our immune system attacks our own insulin-screening cells. 
It's got nothing to do with obesity. It's got nothing to do with all these other things. And this is actually also increasing. It's doubling and tripling, but that's a much rarer form. It used to be called juvenile instead. But of course, the name was changed because basically one-third the people who have type 1 diabetes are over the age of 30. It's pretty silly to call it juvenile when you're 90. But that's a whole different process. <laughs> Many people confuse those two, but that is not the same. The one you're talking about is type 2, which is the sitting and the eating and the rest of this. Well, for uh, type 1 diabetes, why is that increasing as well? No one knows. Oh. You know, I mean, like, so what do we know? You know, and so there have been a variety of speculations going on is that we humans probably now, you know, are just exposed to far fewer germs. The environment is, you know, we... we deal with the way our environment as far as immune system is far, far different than years gone by. So people have speculated, you know, and you've heard this before, it may or not be true, that a little bit of getting sick when you're the right age, right time, and you know, in elementary school, maybe not so bad for you, because this actually induces immunity, but whereas now you start exposed by chance to something. For example, if you and I are identical twins, monozygotic, we got to both, we have the same twins. You get type 1 diabetes, you know, because, of course, we can't do that. Maybe mm -hmm. Tom and I, because we're both <laughs> men, you know, we're picking, but the two I of us have I understand, I understand. You know, but the point is, if Tom gets diabetes, even though he's my identical twin, I only have a 50% chance of getting it. So, you see, it isn't just the genes, and we're talking about type 1. You know, there's something else that triggers this, the environment, and, and no one knows that. So, I these are different diseases, but they're, but again, the commonality is, is your blood sugar is high, and, that, and that's why they call it diabetes. Is that being studied, the immune response? I recently heard um, something like these immune response type illnesses or that being a factor because your immune system needs to have something to do. Yeah, yeah. I no, it's it been interesting. extensively studied, and of course, there have been a variety of, like most things in the world, a variety of studies have been done and actually tests going on. Now, again, we're talking about type 1, where you will treat people with new onset type 1 with immune suppressive drugs. These are nasty drugs. This mm. is what you use to try to, you know, prevent you from rejecting your heart or liver. But when you do that, you, in fact, delay the development of type 1 diabetes. The problem is you only delay it for weeks to months, and you're taking some very, very drugs that have very high problems. But it shows in principle that, and that's what research is being done, if you can figure out how to stop this immune system before you get this disease, that, that will be the, the cure for type 1 diabetes. Type 2 is a different issue. So uh, type 1 diabetes, just to review, is the condition where it's an autoimmune disease where your immune system actually attacks the cells in your pancreas that secrete insulin. Correct. Type 2, your uh, pancreas still secretes insulin, but because you're so heavy, it can't secrete enough to control your blood sugar. And, I mean, and that's 99.99% correct. There are people I'm with close. type... No, no, you are, you are. <laughs> you know, but the word you use, the operative word, is correct is enough. But there are people who are slender who have type 2 diabetes. But what, what's happening to those people, because it's a spectrum, so their ability to secrete insulin is more severely damaged you know, so even though they're slender, they can't secrete quite enough insulin because they're running out of insulin. And why is that? <laughs> keep asking we these keep questions. asking them these questions. What about gestational diabetes? Well, I understand diabetes? it. Now, one of the reasons, one, well, the reason, well, the reason that, for instance, there are a variety of monogenetic causes. This just means that if I have type 2, I have this particular gene. And there are a variety, of, and this is, again, when the word type 2 was used, it was using this as a class. And look, what's type 2? We'll call it type 2. And then we expect that there were specific genetic abnormalities identified. In fact, I was actually one of the people to help write that in 99. Hmm. You know, but now what's happened is the years have gone on, as people, these lean people are referring to, 
they're now very clear there's specific abnormalities in their insulin secreting cells. I won't get into the details. This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. So they basically have, have lost the lottery. So what's happening is, is they're getting older, these insulin secreting cells are failing. Oh, okay. There are other <clears> people who don't, and probably have genes we just don't know about, or there are multiple different ones interacting that when they get heavy, and that's what you're alluding to, then the pancreas runs out. But remember, only about one-third to one-half of people who are overweight, massively overweight, get diabetes. So the real question is, well, why doesn't everybody get diabetes? Sure. You know, what, what can they do you know, that these other people cannot do who end up getting diabetes? What about gestational diabetes? Where does, does that end up being uh, diabetes one or two? Yeah, so gestational, I mean, we get into the definition, but the gestational diabetes you're alluding to is a woman who was known to have normal blood sugars before she becomes pregnant. You know, and then as you're alluding, while you're pregnant, you're found to have it. That is generally type 2, the vast majority of the time. And all that boils down to is when a woman is pregnant, particularly during the third trimester, her body has to secrete a whole bunch more insulin to take care of herself and the baby. That's just the way it works. So this is basically a stress test. So it says, you know, right now this person's pancreas can't quite keep up. And that basically foreshadows the fact that years later, if she's heavy, you know, when you add that stress on, even though you're no longer pregnant, that the same problem is still there. It can't quite keep up, so it's more vulnerable. So that's a very strong risk factor for getting diabetes in the future, unless you do something. You know, stay lean, stay fit. You know, then you dramatically decrease your chances of getting it. We need to take a short break, Dr. Rizzo, but when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, specifically about how you diagnose this condition, whether or not there are any symptoms, and obviously if there are all these people out there who have diabetes and don't know it, at least early on, there aren't any symptoms. And we'll talk about the treatment options, the complications, and we don't want to forget that it's Diabetes Alert Day on March 28th. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is an expert on diabetes, endocrinologist Dr. Robert Rizza of the Mayo Clinic. So uh, symptoms, I want to ask you, uh, there are all these people out there that we talked about who have diabetes and don't know it. So until something bad happens, and of course it can, we'll talk about the complications, they're really, it's, it's asymptomatic. You, you don't know you've got it. Yeah, well, it depends on, of course, how high your blood sugars are. So what happens is, Normal blood sugars, again, you're not into these numbers, are 80 to 100, fine. Your blood glucose. Your blood glucose concentration. So when your blood sugar gets higher, higher, and higher, your kidney, you and I, whether we have diabetes or not, our kidney excretes glucose, but is able then to pull it back in so it doesn't lose glucose in the urine. But if the sugars get up over 180 to 200 milligrams per DL, or it's real high, now we're peeing so much glucose out that the kidney can no longer pull onto it, and the glucose goes out in the urine. That's why it's called diabetes mellitus, sweet urine. You know, and so what happens then, you start going to the bathroom a bunch, you wake up, particularly people notice this during the nighttime because they have to get up and go to the bathroom two or three times. They're losing all these calories in their urine. You think this is because it's sugar. And you think this is great, you lose weight, but now you're losing muscle. You know, you're getting weak. You end up with very high sugars. Your vision gets blurred, not because there was something wrong with the retina, just because there's glucose stuck in your eyes. Mm. But the vast majority of people Blood sugars are not 180 or 200, they're 120, 150, 120, 130, 150, 160, they're in between here. And they never, they don't know it to get this high. If you wait till you get this high, then you got real problems. Of course, we want to pick this problem up when your blood sugars are only a little bit elevated so you can take care of it and prevent the complications. All right, so it's important to have your glucose checked. I mean, that's the only way to know if you have, di if your sugar is normal, if you have prediabetes, 
uh, or if, if you're truly diabetic. That's right? correct. There's something called a glycohemoglobin, hemoglobin A1C, I won't get into, but it's another sophisticated test. It just, it's looking glucose, but it is a blood test over time. The fourth Tuesday in March is Diabetes Alert Day. It's a one-day wake-up call to inform the American public about the seriousness of diabetes, particularly if it's left undiagnosed or untreated. This year, it falls on March 28th. And what do you recommend if people, the group that you just said, they don't know that their blood sugar levels are elevated. Uh, What do you want folks to do on Diabetes Alert Day? Well, I mean, the American Diabetes Association has a variety of criteria. If you're a gestational diabetes, you alluded to it before, in certain ethnic groups and obesity. But I think the bottom line is see your doctor. You know, I mean, I mean, because most people, what do people know about all this stuff? You know, that, that you and I and everybody probably ought to be getting their blood sugars were over 45 checked once a year or someplace. So you can be sure this, because again, you won't know it, you know, and so you need to get your blood sugar checked. It's when a some, simple test. When somebody has just their uh, physical, a yearly physical. It's a good place to do it. They do every five years. Right. <laughs> that, is, is that part of that or should, should you specifically request that? Well, I mean, it should be part of it, but nothing like asking your doctor. You ought to ask her, say, you know, by the mm-hmm. way, what is my blood sugar? Okay. We, we, we talk about, in, in, in the American Diabetes Association, you talk about know your numbers. You know, one of your numbers is, what's my glucose? But you also say, what's my blood pressure? You know, and what's my cholesterol? Because these things all work together. This is how this thing just works together. You know, one thing that, that people could do before or on Diabetes Alert Day, March 28th, is go to the American uh, Diabetes Association website. And exactly. there's a place where you can assess your risk. Right. And then it'll tell you what your risk is of having diabetes or getting diabetes. Tom, that's a superb word. It's a risk because there are a variety of things that place you and I in a greater risk. So you, you can go on there and do just what you said. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. www.diabetes.org. Good. And then you punch on, are you at risk? It'll tell you. So uh, complications. What happens, we want to talk about a little bit about treatment of diabetes, but let's also uh, let our listeners know what happens if you have elevated blood sugar and don't get it under control. All the bad things that can happen. Well, I mean, all the bad things that can happen, you can start with the top of your head. So increased incidence, dramatic increased incidence of dementia. Dramatic increase the incidence of blindness That's in like Alzheimer's. Vision. Alzheimer's, yeah. but more, it's not just Alzheimer's, sure. it's just it's all the way across. You know, increase incidence, I said, of blindness problems, seeing dramatic increase incidence in heart attacks, changes in blood flow. So you, your blood vessels, you end up with what's called ischemia, and there's kink in the blood in your in toes, particular in feet, you end up with amputations, kidney yeah. failure, nerve problems where you can't feel your feet, you can't walk it, it keeps you up at night, you're in agony. And this is all bad stuff. But the key to this is, the key is if you keep your blood sugar normal, your blood pressure, remember I said this all works together, and your blood lipids normal, you know, your chances of getting these things are very low. Classic disease, you take care of it, you're fine, you don't care of it, big problems. So it, that's so interesting that, that, you know, there are a lot of people who do have diabetes, whether it's... Uh, type one or type two, who do a very good job of keeping their their blood glucose under control, which is, by the way, not easy to do, and they really can uh, pretty much avoid the complications of the disease. Dramatically decreased. You know, there are something, we get into all of these words, but there are some subtle things, but in reality, you'll live to be 98 years old and you get hit by a bus when you're 86 and diabetes has got nothing to do with it. Medications that are available to treat diabetes, what's the first line of, of defense against the disease and what have you got to treat it? 
Well, there are a variety. Of them. The list has not gotten quite long, mm -hmm. longer than you and I want to talk about right now. But if you have type 2 diabetes, the first line is a drug called metformin. It used to be called glucophage. Doctors make up all this stuff to make it confusing. <laughs> but met, it's a generic. It's cheap. makes you live longer. This drug it, it may actually protect against cancer. I think we're all going to be taking metformin for this as well. So it's, it's a key and important drug that you and your doctor should talk about. For diabetes, for 1 and 2? Type no, 1 and 2? Two, two. Two. Okay. I'm not talking only about 2. Type 1, insulin. Okay. That's a good point. makes it easy. Insulin. We get into how you give the insulin and what you do and whether it's a pump or a shot. It's a good point. Type 2, metformin. After metformin, it becomes a bit more complicated because there's a variety of drugs now that work through a mechanism that makes your body secrete insulin. It's called the GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1, not that you care. This is a hormone that your, your and my intestine secretes and basically wakes the pancreas up and says, hey, secrete some insulin. Pros and cons with this, there are different drugs, different pills, different shots. The other drugs, which are called SGL2 inhibitors, which all it means is the sodium glucose transport, which means your kidney doesn't absorb, makes you pee the glucose out. Who would think that would work? But it does work. That also does things in a variety of ways that may well be helpful. They're drugs that make your pancreas secrete insulin. Sometimes they're called so-called soft enrheas. Unfortunately, they make the secrete insulin whether the sugars are high or low, so you can be at risk for a low blood sugar, so-called hypoglycemia, but not always. I mean, so, and, and then so you and your doctor together would decide which of these mixtures. And then insulin. Some of these insulins are very good for people type 2. But it's a matter of what's the best combination for you. Uh, your comment about metformin, I, I'd like to ask you a little bit more. Uh, we have interviewed researchers that are studying metformin's effects on arresting the effects of aging on the body. That's right. And you just said... That's right. ...that someday we're all probably going to be on metformin. <laughs> I Please was, expand I was, a little bit. I was being cute. There are ongoing studies, and rodents, I mean, because anything cures a rodent, as we know. Give anything to a rodent, it works. <laughs> so there are ongoing studies suggesting that metformin may change some of the processes that cause aging. There are ongoing studies that suggest metformin may change some of the processes, you know, in rodents, you know, that cause difficulty, you know, with other abnormalities, including cancer, mm -hmm. because this is a drug which seems to be working certain mechanisms from there. There are some data suggesting that metformin itself may change heart failure. I mean, but all this stuff is may, 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 might. And that's why the proper studies need to be done, whether this is correct or not. All right. Bottom line. If you have diabetes, uh, there are multiple ways to treat it. The first thing you have to do is figure out you, you've got it, and that is with a blood glucose test. And before that, if you want to find out what your risk is, you go to diabetes.org and punch in, are you at risk, and you'll find out. And also, don't forget about Diabetes Alert Day, and if you haven't had your blood glucose checked, be sure and do it. Agree. Good recommendations. Dr. Robert Grizz, a diabetes expert at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for the chance to chat with you all. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss brain health as we age with the Mayo Clinic expert. And later on in the program, we'll learn how hypnosis is used by trained clinicians to help their patients. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Aerobic exercise is good for you. We all know that. But how much do you really need? Most of us feel that you need to be active at least three or four times a week. Why? because our bodies are set up that if you don't use your muscle within about 48 hours, 
it starts to do bad things. Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says those bad things include muscle shrinkage because your body thinks it doesn't need the muscle anymore and an increase in belly fat. The American Heart Association recommends healthy adults get 150 minutes of moderate activity per week or 75 minutes of vigorous activity per week. Dr. Kopesky says interval training is a great way to get good results in a short amount of time. If you can do like three intervals, going hard for a minute or two, uh, getting your breath back and going hard a couple uh, for a minute or two. You get the same benefits in 10 minutes of intervals as you do in 45 minutes of steady state. Moving reduces your risk of heart attack, stroke, some cancers, diabetes, and Alzheimer's disease. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, as we age, and both of us are doing that, me probably a little faster than you are, <laughs> but as we age, our brains lose volume. Our brains get smaller, and that makes us more susceptible to dementia. And, of course, that's a decline in memory and other thinking skills. And, of course, Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, and nobody wants that. No, a recent study published in the journal Neurology followed 400 patients in Scotland from uh, age 70 to 76 and found that choosing the right foods helped preserve their brain mass. Now, diet may have something to do with this, of course, but are there other things that you can do to help preserve brain health as we get older? Here to discuss brain health as we age is Mayo Clinic neurologist Dr. David Notman. Welcome to the program, Dr. Notman. It's nice to meet you. Thank you for asking me. Dr. Notman, good to have you here. And this, this whole question of dementia and Alzheimer's uh, and so many people that, that seem to have it these days, is this mainly the result of the, uh, the people living longer? Yes, I think that it is. The dramatic change in life expectancy over the last 100 years uh, accounts for a lot of this difference. At the beginning of the 20th century, only 4% of the population lived to be over age 65. Now we're at 14 or 15%. And when you have a disease that increases with advancing age and you have more people living longer, that multiplicative effect is what's created uh, the, the health crisis that we have with this disorder. So just like everything else, our brain wears out. I'm afraid so. Are there things that we can do to help preserve the brain health or the volume of the brain? Well, <clears throat> uh, brain volume is definitely an important uh, parameter for brain health. It's probably not the only thing, <clears throat> but it's a good measure and we use that in, in research. But things like staying mentally active, staying mentally engaged, socially engaged, physically active, and yes, diet probably plays some role, are all important things but the emphasis really needs to be on lifelong engagement in these activities, not starting at age 70 after doing none of them before that. It's so, a little late, huh? Yeah, it's a little late. And it is the lifetime engagement in, in mentally stimulating activities like occupation, physical um, activity, um, that, that does make a difference. But that isn't to say that continuing to do them in older age or increasing those activities in older age might not have some value. So uh, the other thing we want to talk about is, is medications, because I know there are a lot of drug companies out there that are trying to come up with a medication that will either prevent uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, or reverse uh, dementia or Alzheimer's disease. But so far, there isn't anything any good out there, is there? 
really well very there good. are no that is the the short answer the the longer answer is that there are some drugs that delay the progression of symptoms in people who have symptomatic alzheimer dementia the cholinesterase inhibitors but in terms of drugs that are more potent and those cholinesterase inhibitors aren't all that potent in terms of something more potent or in terms of something that can prevent Alzheimer's disease, we're not there yet. Actually, there was uh, just a press release from a drug company of a promising drug that failed in symptomatic Alzheimer dementia, which is unfortunately in a longer line of failures um, that we've had in this field. Um, this is a really tough nut to crack. and. Uh, we just have to keep working at it. I think we're, we have some new strategies that the field is applying, but it's a very slow process. I, I really do believe that the, as the biology, as our knowledge of the biology increases, we will find effective therapies, but I don't know how long it's going to take. Brain volume uh, is one of the things that you were talking about as we got going here. Is the size of your brain a good <laughs> determinant of whether you're going to get dementia or not? It's actually probably not the size of your brain itself because you know, I know many uh, four foot 11 women who are much smarter than I am. Um, uh, and th so it's not just brain size, it's actually the thickness of your cerebral cortex, really? the surface covering of the brain that probably uh, does make a difference. And actually in our research here at Mayo, as seen by many others, the thickness of the cerebral cortex uh, does bear a pretty close relationship with cognitive functioning. And it also is something that is susceptible to Alzheimer's disease and to cerebrovascular disease that when people have strokes, strokes. it also affects affects uh, other blood vessel changes in the brain. So, so that cerebral cortex, that's the <clears throat> outer layer of the of the brain. Can that's we exactly. measure that on Tracy? <laughs> well, we can sign you up for our research and uh, put you in our research MR scanner and, and we can uh, we can do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, if if uh, I can't do that, what uh, to have good cerebral cortex health, <laughs> what is it that people should be doing? Well, th there's no question that the more educated you are, the more brain reserve you uh, acquire. And the more uh, a brain reserve that you acquire, if it's more synapses or more cells that makes that cortex thick, that is going to protect you even in the face of emerging disease. The more disease you have, the higher the education you have, you are able to tolerate more pathology. Wow, uh, it, I've it's, never it's heard that before. Really important to keep your brain active your entire life. And then if you do that, you're less likely to get dementia. Or you'll, you'll still get the dementia, but, but it won't be quite as severe? No, it'll be delayed, delayed. compared <clears throat> to when you would otherwise have gotten it had you had a lower level of education. Tell me more about what uh, the studies that you're doing on the cerebral cortex. <laughs> Well, we have a population-based study here in Olmstead County that uh, my partner Ron Peterson is the principal investigator on, and we are recruiting uh, and have recruited probably close to 5,000 people, initially over the age of 70. Now we've gone back to 30, and we're doing scans on them, on the younger people every other year and the older people every year, uh, looking at the uh, MR scans and measuring uh, thickness of the cerebr cerebral cortex. We're also doing scans that can actually measure the bad proteins in the brains of people who are destined to get Alzheimer's disease. With the MR scans, we can also find evidence of stroke, cerebrovascular disease, and we're focusing on are people who are cognitively normal in order to study 
what happens as people decline and develop cognitive impairment. We're looking for risk factors. We're trying to really quantify the biology in living people, which is something we'd never been able to do until a few years ago. So what do you know about uh, risk factors? We know the number one risk factor for dementia or Alzheimer's is age. What else? Well, um, age is the big one. Genetics or family history is the second one, but that's really important to clarify. I just saw a woman today who was very worried about it, as are many people. But what a family history of dementia does is to drop the age of onset or lower the age of onset. Uh, if you have a mother who was age 85 when she became impaired, that probably doesn't convey much risk to you. When I talk about genetics as a risk, it's when people have family members who are under age 70 or under age 60. The only other key uh, risk factor that we know about is for dementia in general, and it's probably related to cerebrovascular disease, and that's avoidance of diabetes, avoidance of hypertension, avoidance of obesity, uh, good exercise, good diet, um, and avoiding smoking. All right. So the things that you've talked about are staying mentally active, staying physically active. You said that diet might play a role, but every once in a while you see an article that talks about a brain food. Is there such a thing as a brain food? Well, any story in the medical literature about diet invokes, sorry, a, a feeding frenzy in the media. <laughs> <laughs> and people are so anxious to find the magic bullet, uh, especially if it's uh, in grandma's uh, um, <laughs> Swedish rye bread. Um, but uh, I'm afraid that is overly simplistic. There are diets that are better than others. And the Mediterranean diet is the one that's holding sway now that, that seems to be associated with lesser cardiovascular disease. And, and if it's good for the heart, it should be good for the brain. But I'm not uh, necessarily endorsing one diet over the other, but just using that as an example. Finally, if people want to learn more about the research that's happening at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, the cerebral cortex, uh, <laughs> which how can they get in touch with you to find out more about that? Well, I think they could contact our Alzheimer's Disease Research Center um, through the Mayo Clinic uh, operator. 507-284-2511. And then ask for the Alzheimer's Research Center? Correct. Sign you up for find out about your cortex. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> Brain Aging with neurologist Dr. David Knopfman. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll find out how hypnosis is used in the clinical setting. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Hypnosis. I, we're finally going to talk about hypnosis. <laughs> also referred to as hypnotherapy or hypnotic suggestion. And supposedly, you know, it's this trance-like state in which you have this heightened focus and concentration. And did, did you know that hypnosis can be used to help you gain control over undesired behaviors or help you cope better with anxiety or pain? Or So if there's anything about me you'd like to change, Tracy, today may be your chance. I just so happen to have a handy-dandy list right <laughs> I bet here. Yes, you do. But the One at a time. Yeah, the experts say even though you're more open to suggestion during hypnosis, you don't lose control over your behavior. Some of those stories you read about people who are hypnotized just aren't true. Well, I hope not. 
because that's some crazy stuff out there, isn't there? <laughs> Here to discuss the use of hypnosis in the clinical setting is Debbie Fuhrer. Welcome to the program, Debbie. Thank you. Debbie, so nice to see you. We all want to know this. I mean, it's such a, a terribly uh, interesting, potentially entertaining story. But the first question is, we'd all like to be able to hypnotize somebody. How did you learn how to do it? My training in graduate school was to take three different classes on hypnosis and then to practice, 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 because you learn the more that you practice it. You can see that different techniques work with different people. But the important thing is to empower people to bring their suggestions to you, and you're guiding them with their own suggestions so they don't lose control. It's not a form of sleep. It's not that only gullible, weak people are <laughs> hypnotized. <laughs> As a matter of fact, most of the population can be hypnotized. And you can see that they're on their cell phone and they're walking. And I've seen examples where they've run into things, fell into a fountain. <laughs> um, they all, they're crossing the street and almost get hit by a car. And that's focused attention. And they don't have peripheral awareness. What's the difference between meditation and hypnosis? Meditation only needs two things. It's not isolating and it's not emptying your mind. You only need to relax and focus. Then with hypnosis, you have focused attention, but we add suggestions to it to help bring about change in mood, cognition, behavior, sensation. Can you tell when they're hypnotized and when they're not? I ask them. You know, I will just simply say, if I, let's say I'm giving them a suggestion to become more relaxed, and I will uh, have little markers where I'll say, you might already notice that your fingertips are getting warmer, and I'm going along with whatever their response is, is correct. So they may say, no, I don't notice it yet. And I'll say, well, let's just continue with that. And as you relax more, you might see that the warmth is moving up your hands. And then they'll go, yeah, I'm starting to feel that. And so I would never argue with them like, yeah, you're just faking. <laughs> if they say, yes, I can feel that warmth moving up my body. And it's uh, using, I do it in conjunction with other techniques like progressive muscle relaxation or cognitive behavioral therapy. It's stronger if you do it in connection with another technique. How is this different than what a lot of people know about hypnosis as they see in a nightclub act or on the college campus circuit? Or I mean, that's a group of people usually. So what are you doing differently? I'm using suggestions to help them change, make changes in their behavior or cognition or sensation or perception or their mood in a way to help them feel better. In a nightclub act, they're doing this for entertainment. And they're very, very good at choosing who can be hypnotized easily. And then the person who's doing it, they know what they're doing, and they, they're totally okay with um, entertaining. So tell us how you use this in the clinical setting. So I personally like to use it to reduce pain, to reduce anxiety, to um, help people, uh, for example, if you want a, a more concrete example, have a patient who's going through proton beam therapy, mm -hmm. and she has to put a mask on, and she felt that this was very restrictive, and it's scary, and you can't move during this whole time, so mm -hmm. you get claustrophobic. Sure. So then I practice with her before she goes to proton beam again, and my goal is for it to get boring. Mm. 
you know, I'm not going to tell her you're going to enjoy this, but if it can just be, eh, it's so no that big it, deal. So that it's not anxiety-inducing. Exactly, exactly. What about smoking? Can you help people stop smoking? If that's what they want to do. So I can never make anyone do something they don't want to do. But if they want to quit smoking or lose weight, what I suggest they do is they come up with their own suggestions and then I use those suggestions to guide them to make those changes because it's an agreement between the two of us that I'm going to use psychotherapeutic technique to help you make these changes. So sometimes I might start with harm reduction. I'll have them reduce the amount that they're smoking or reduce where they're doing it. And, and what about weight loss? I mean, it seems like if this actually worked, you'd be pretty busy. <laughs> how, how effective is it? <laughs> Again, I think it depends on the individual. So it's important that the suggestion be positive and current and here and now. So for example, let's say Tracy said, I love chocolate and I want to reduce the amount of chocolate I eat. I, and I did bring you some chocolate just in case. <laughs> and I would say- You gotta share. Okay. <laughs> when you unwrap this wrapper, I want you to just smell it and then take the smallest bite, and you will notice it just floods your mouth with sensation and chocolate, and you really enjoy the whole experience. But it's so intense that I don't think you want another one. Wow. Hmm. Well, interesting. And well, that I works. Do. I already know I want another one. <laughs> I like the idea, uh, this list of, uh, and I'm in my show prep to speak with you, it says fatigue. How, how do you use hypnosis to help someone with fatigue? Right now I'm uh, participating in a study as a hypnotherapist to see if we can help breast cancer patients who are going through radiotherapy. Ah. And they we're doing two things. We want to reduce the fatigue, and we also want to reduce the emotional distress. If we can just suggest to them in a more positive, current way as you feel energized, not you don't feel as fatigued. You know, you feel energized the next time that you will go through this radiotherapy. And then we also talk about the emotional distress because we're working on both of those. Do you ever, are there any risks here? I mean, have you ever said to yourself, ooh, I went a little too far with this one. I'm not sure we'll ever get her back. (laughs) (laughs) It's not possible to get stuck in hypnosis. Uh, You physically, emotionally, you cannot, it's like saying you're getting stuck reading a book. Sure. You know. Um, Now, I I am careful with, if I have someone with severe mental illness, I may not choose to do hypnosis. Sure. And how do you know finally, because we're on 150 radio stations, so not everybody's going to be able to come and see you, but how do you know how to find someone who is a good hypnotherapist? I strongly suggest that they find someone who's licensed in psychological services and that they also don't be afraid to ask. How much training have you had? How much experience have you had? When have you used this? And I would also be careful that um, you not go to someone just because they put that shingle out. You know, you really want to make sure that they're educated and licensed. All right, you know, I think my fingertips are starting to get a little warm. (laughs) (laughs) She has that effect on people. (laughs) That's right. Mind-body specialist Debbie Fuhrer, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs.
Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 